to this, another episode of Frame and Reference, by way of the Art of the Frame feed. If this is the first time you're hearing my voice, my name is Kenny McMillan, and I am the host of the aforementioned podcast Frame and Reference. Um, and I'm a cinematographer, so I primarily talk to cinematographers. Um, at this point, we're probably at 83 episodes recorded, 81 out. Um, we just wrapped season two of Frame and Reference, so you have a big backlog to go through. So go ahead, while I'm doing this intro, head on over to uh, Frame and Reference, wherever you're listening to this, and uh, give it a subscribe so you'll know when these new episodes come out, because there will actually be a few scattered uh, along, I've just learned today, <laughs> uh, during our winter hiatus, as it were, and then we'll come back in full force probably around February, but uh, there's going to be some really good special episodes in between there that I'm like, I'm not kidding. They're huge, um, <laughs> but uh, that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about Darren Moran, the DP of the new comedy film, The Estate, um, which is kind of like a throwback 80s, 90s style comedy. Um, but Darren has also shot Second Unit, which is honestly fascinating. You're going to love it um, on a ton of stuff. Moon Knight, uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, there was another Marvel one in there. Hawkeye. There you go. Um, you know, he also shot Second Unit on great films like Chef um, or, uh, you know, Godzilla vs. Kong or the new Point Break. Um, so he's had his hand in a lot of amazing, uh, great films and television. So we get into all that, you know, before we started recording, we were talking about our mutual love of, uh, skateboarding, snowboarding and all things punk rock. So, um, you know, this, this podcast is full of, uh, great entertaining anecdotes and also plenty of education for those who seek it. So, um, as I tend to say, uh, I'm going to keep this intro short. <laughs> Hopefully that was short enough, um, and let you get to my interview with Darren Moran. I was listening to a, a podcast you've done and you had actually brought up that you were a skateboarder previously, previous to becoming a filmmaker. And I know you, you, uh, it says on your website, even that you, you dropped out of college. So what, which a very skateboarder yeah. move of you. Yeah. But, was, um, <laughs> didn't make parents very happy, but sure. Were there, <laughs> uh, kind of a two part question. One, were you filming other skaters while you were riding around and two, were there any uh, skate films coming up that really had an impact on you? Oh yeah. Like the, the bones brigade series, like all the Santa Cruz, you know, like the Santa Cruz skateboard films are rough and like uh, punk rock oriented. Um, that was inspiring to my friends and I, and like, we would, we would just kind of replicate those things. Although <clears throat> Editing wasn't, it wasn't as, obviously the tools weren't as advanced as they are now, but we right. made do and we made stupid, you know, movies on VHS, and, you know, watched them and drank beer and stuff. It's awesome. But it, it, it like, it did ignite in me. And I, I always had a love for photography too. So it was like kind of merging those two things. Yeah. And I got to work a little bit. I worked on the like repairing the animal chin ramp. Like, I, I don't know how I got oh, really? drugged into that. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. Some buddy offered me a, a, a ride up to the, to, to go up to the ramp and work on it or whatever. Anyway, it turned into like a lot of drinking and not a lot of work. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I got to see some of the, and I was present when they were filming some of the Santa Cruz ones 
later in my skateboarding career and just that they shot on 16 millimeter film they shot with these cool you know old uh wide angle lenses and like there was always a guy with a battery belt and like it was just like i loved the just the mechanics of all of it and the fact right. that you could express yourself with with a camera like that was pretty exciting for me yeah it was there was two because for me it was snowboard films like i was saying before and like um you know like oh but even with skateboarding you know i'm, I'm ever so slightly younger than you but like the yeah right video um was fucking huge and that's how i got introduced to like uh spike jones and stuff like that which is a weird what most yeah. people are like oh yeah you know it was uh being john malkovich i'm like no it was jackass and uh you know yeah. the, the other skate films he worked on and he was a photographer for trans world like back yeah. in the day is there do you know of anyone else who kind of has that more um skate life to professional pipeline because there's like rick Kosick, kind of like later in life there's um there's a couple well, of Dave, obviously Dave Sione, Dave Sione um was a pro snowboarder. He he shoots a lot of commercials. Um really? he's a DP, yeah. And shoots a lot of commercials. He's based out of Northern California now. Um there was a props guy. There are lots of people, but they're they've since like cleaned up their <laughs> right. <laughs> generally like not everybody cleans up all the way. I certainly still have remnants of it but like you ever every once in a while i run into somebody that has like a piece of at work or whatever just with a piece of uh memorabilia from that from their youth whether it's on a cart of theirs or whatever and then right that usually sparks a conversation and it's like oh yeah i used to do handrails you know to fakie when i was in high school and broke my collarbone and right. <laughs> Because that is that is kind of funny now that I think about it that like skateboarding, snowboarding, and film are all kind of uh, passions that are built on a culture. You know, like snowboarding is definitely like obviously riding is fun, nature is awesome, but it's it's the going to the mountain with your friends, stay all packing into one cabin. You know, the the hot tubs after the thing that all bring that together and, and film I feel, or at least art in general is, is similarly culture based at its best, you know, mm -hmm. it's not all roses, but um, no. certainly, <laughs> <laughs> certainly there is a cultural element to it that kind of gets you into it. No, it is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the camaraderie of, of doing things with other people. I mean, I always thought skateboarding was always a collaboration um, and a kind of a healthy competition. They're also creative sports. Like, you're, yeah. We were creating tricks. You're you're doing riffs on things that you saw in a video, and and you know modifying them and doing something different. Surfing and snowboarding are amazing, like intensely creative. Just the the line that you draw yeah. as you're going down a mountain, the turns that you do, the style that you have, like it's all very creative. And I and I think there's film is the same way, like style and 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 a process and approach and the mechanics of filmmaking plus the collaboration. Like I'm just someone analogous to like building a ramp with your friends, you know, you build a ramp, you skate it. There's a lot of creativity flying around. There's the camaraderie of like doing something difficult with a group of people that have kind of grit and that's yeah. exciting. Yeah. Filmmaking's hard. <laughs> <laughs> Come to find out. And yeah. it hurts. It hurts your body and you're, you know, it's challenging. It, 
it's funny you mentioned the uh, like which line you take, because now that I think about it, that's that's not terribly far off. Right. Because it's you've got a preset path that you could take in the film or in snowboarding. And if you see someone else's, maybe you're out early, you know, and you see someone's line and then you see them kind of like duck into the trees and then there's like clearly a jump or whatever. You're like, oh, that's interesting. They stayed on the groomer this whole time, but took that little hip side hit or something. And like there, there's definitely an, uh, an analog there for for filmmaking where it's like you see a movie that's pretty straight down the road. But then there's like a little thing that you're like, oh, this person's a little little uh, maybe more interesting than than mm-hmm. the average person can can is showing that they can do a little bit more than what uh, they're p- perhaps presenting here. Totally. Like ducking into the woods. It's like, where does that go? I want to see where that goes. I want to, fig- you know, I want to f- find out where that line leads. Yeah, yeah. I think and- <laughs> there's a lot of analogy to be drawn from, from those things. And th- not many sports have that, that, uh, you know, that transmission from, from to creative. Cause so many people that I skateboarded with are in creative fields. So they're, illustrators or graphic designers, photographers, filmmakers, you know, I think it kind of breeds that it's so open, you know, and it's so personal too. You're not doing stuff. (laughs) You're not doing stuff with a team necessarily. Right. You know, it's also, uh, I'm kind of wondering, do you, do you have maybe an insight as to why or not why, but what it was about the, uh, kind of the nineties and early two thousands in, not that like skate culture drove culture. There were so many films and television, music videos and, and everything. It was kind of, you know how like graffiti isn't just graffiti. It's also a, a culture. It's also, it's an art form mm-hmm. on top of same thing with hip hop skateboarding. It was kind of the same way. And, and I've asked a few like um, bigger, like music video DPs, for instance, what the anal, what people can do today. That is that punk rock, but cause it used to be quite, like music videos were incredibly polished and you could build a career off them. Now, if you try, it's practically useless, but um, so much out there. And I think I might've asked three questions at this point, but the first one was basically (laughs) like, what, uh, what was it about? Has that changed at all? Or has that punk rock spirit kind of died in, in modern and current um, filmmaking or, or, or the zeitgeist, or is there still some, is it just hidden more? Um, I think there's definitely, um, that still exists very much so in the independent film space. Like I've had the great fortune to work in, in, in a lot of different uh, strata of the film industry and the indie space is still very, very punk rock in, Mm -hmm. in, in the, in the way that I think you and I both understand, like there's stuff going on there that's rebellious and fun and interesting. And, um, but as soon as money's injected into that, I think it changes the equation, sadly. Um, yeah, the more, the more money, the less punk rock it becomes (laughs) (laughs) pretty much by definition, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, what was the second part of that? Oh, it was, uh, if, which was almost a wide departure from that, but it was, uh, is there a current analog for like the music video culture of like, as, as Mm. a, as a filmmaker, like what can people do to, cause that was kind of the ground floor for a lot of people. Entry level. Um, Yeah. And now you you could, you could be more creative too. I mean, as a visual art, it's still revered. Like camera Maj has one of the, one of the big things that camera Maj is, is the, is the, the, you know, awards for 
best cinematography for music videos. Like, I think that's where you can you can break the narrative structure. You can you can showcase you know abstract lighting and and camera movement and kind of push the envelope. So I mean, I think part of that um, music video as as art that still exists. It's just that the the outlets for those things are diffused you know it's not as focused as it used to be so if you make a video for a small artist it's unless that artist makes it big no one's gonna see it i mean it's not on mtv where everyone's watching mtv find it on youtube (laughs) yeah it it was it was really focused and there's so many talented people shooting now that that like the quality of the work is is insane it's like it's yeah. amazing. It really is like the hyper competitive in that way. Well, and it's, it's funny too. Cause like you've, I guess, uh, man, I, I feel like I've beat this horse to death, but like the uh, democratization of filmmaking, as many have said that, you know, people are like, Oh, now you can get a camera that makes everything look amazing. It's like, that's true. But you know what the real democratization was, was not having to shoot tape. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Getting getting tape onto a computer was a bitch. It was awful. (laughs) And then like just nonlinear editing was amazing. I remember being in school and cutting not only on film, but on videotape and being stuck with Mm. the shitty edit that you had. You'd be like, okay, great. I got to start all over again. You know, tapping buttons and trying to, you know, get the, the position of the heads just right. Right. And you always get you either get, uh, OK, go right up front or you, <laughs> you got uh, the guy chimping the camera right at the last second. It was always the ones I fought. Oh, with. yeah. Off, yeah, totally. Is that good? Um, <laughs> How did I look? Yeah. The, uh, but then I lost track of the question. What did you say? What no, did, that's fine. I was I was going to move on, though, because I was looking yeah. at your IMDb. It's actually fascinating how much amazing second unit work you've done. And it's actually something I've never talked to anyone in 80 episodes of this podcast, or at least frame and reference. Um, And that is for people who don't know, what is the uh, difference between a second unit DP and the main unit? Because I feel like most people, when they're watching behind the scenes footage, are actually seeing footage of the second unit in action. You know, all the all the visual effects stuff, all the all the action stuff, you know, um, et cetera. Often, yeah. I mean, okay. So the di- main difference, the main difference is at the conception of the ideas and that's like the conception phase of that what the film's going to look like. The the main unit DP is working with the main unit director, sculpting all that stuff. That's that's their purview. Like that's that's their film. Um, and the second unit, at least in my experience, it's been a recent thing for me as a DP although the work has been so amazing and plentiful, it was hard for me to stop because it was creatively challenging and um, it's also work. Um, right. That you, as a second unit DP, you usually get hired by the second unit director, which, which is often either the, someone who's been a stunt coordinator. Um, their backgrounds can be, you know, stunt choreography and, and coordinating um also visual effects supervisors just depends on the film what kind of second unit director they put in place right so i have a relationship with uh, a couple 
second unit directors that are are stunt based. And so um, the work that I've done recently with Marvel and and some other shows is is reflected in that experience. Although then you end up doing a lot of visual effects as well. Um, so my job is to make all of our photography fit into the the design of the main unit cinematographer and main unit directors uh ideas right so right. we have to which is challenging um because often they'll shoot um the actors faces um for a certain part of a scene and then we'll shoot all the action with right. stunt doubles and then we'll come back and shoot with the actors again um to overlap all those things so and the lighting has to be the same the you know and often because of scheduling i'll initiate a scene because of the way the schedule got flipped or somebody got sick and they couldn't make it and they pushed this whole chunk to another time and like so um you end up doing a variety of things a lot of it is working with the second unit director stunt coordinator um and the camera operators that i hire like to include in this is is stunt chore choreography because a lot of it's really complex so right. if we have time we'll rehearse that in a in like a stunt space and then we'll video, uh, you know tape it and and the stunt department often will cut it and it'll be like a roadmap to get through the the scene and so if that's a week's worth of work we'll have kind of a at least kind of a shot list based on the those those moments that we had to rehearse um, I always, <laughs> one of my new, um, descriptions of second unit work is you have like three different modes. Like you're, you're an artist, you're, uh, the fire department <laughs> <laughs> and you're a garbage collector. <laughs> yep. Sometimes you end up doing, you know, just odds and ends of scenes that didn't you know, they, the main unit didn't have time to, to, to photograph and you'll get like, oh, she walks in the room, picks up the vase, you know, water pitcher. And like, we need to get her picking up the water pitcher. Okay. So we have a double right. or whatever, and you, you know, odds and ends. That's the garbage collection part. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just the, those are the kind of the three hats that you have to wear. I, uh, I actually recently, my first foray into Feature, a, a, a quote unquote real feature film was I was second unit for one whole day uh, on um, I don't know how much I'm, I, I suppose it's fine on uh, the last Bruce Willis movie. Oh, okay. Which, which comes <laughs> out in later from now. Um, but uh, yeah, same thing. It was just like, all right, well there he's aiming his gun at one point. So it's just like literally the director's hand. You know, or like, oh, we need an insert. Same thing. You know, we need an insert of the laptop. Okay, there we go. I did have to. I think it's fine. I did have to reshoot uh, the reverse of an entire scene, which yeah. I thought was, but not in New Mexico, obviously, in, in a parking lot in Los Angeles. So uh, that was an interesting education. But the reason the reason I wanted to talk to you about it is because I actually found it kind of uh, that specific day was pretty challenging. But the idea of matching a known lighting setup, matching a scene and doing all that while maybe not like glorious in the same way does feel almost more interesting. Like it's like, cause you're, you have constraint and, mm -hmm. and you're not, you don't have to deal with, 
Like it's the same reason I find first day scene kind of freeing because it's like, just make sure it's in focus. I can do that. And then right. I go home feeling fine, you know, versus DP. You've got all these questions in your head that you're constantly rattling around. Is oh, second unit yeah. DPing kind of like that for you where it's a little more, maybe not easier, but uh, you feel more like, you know, a workman in that sense. Yeah. I mean, I do like, I, I have to say, I mean, obviously I've done both. I do. I like both. I kind of like it's sad that our business niches people out. So, yeah. So, you know, narrowly because I like to do both. Like I, I did a movie earlier this year. That was my movie. You know, I was the DP and then I did a bunch of Marvel second unit on a show that I can't talk about. That was equally as satisfying in totally different ways. Like I do love matching. I like the puzzle right. of matching, uh, you know, other photography that's happened, right? Which is you also really educational. Strategic. It's hugely educational. And sometimes it's it's really challenging. Um the other the other opportunity that it gives you, like if if you're fortunate enough to do the work at a high enough level, if you haven't upscaled your work, so I was a camera operator, I worked on you know pretty decent sized movies for a fair amount of time, and I got to see a lot of stuff, right? And then I went off and I started shooting independent films, no budget, tiny budgets. And, you know, you're scraping for every light you're, you're lighting with natural light and putting NDs on windows everywhere and hoping that you have enough time. And then I was fortunate to fall into this Marvel second unit environment. And I thought, Oh, I'm prepared for this because I, you know, I worked on all these, movies right but i wasn't the dp when i was working on those giant movies right i was a camera operator I sh you show up it's the most glorious job in the film business camera 100 you show yep. up like someone gives you coffee you like take off your jacket you sit on the dolly you talk you make shots i mean i'm i'm totally like making fun <laughs> of camera operators but and then you get to go home at the end of the day it's just like what you said it's very your, the parameters for the, your work are, are defined, right? Right, exactly. The, my point was about the second unit work is I got thrown into a situation um, the first round that I did where I had to upscale my work considerably because mm -hmm. it's not all just handed to you by the main unit. There will be several sets and, and environments that I had to to order lights and, and work with the rigging crew and, and develop you know, plans uh, for huge sequences, you know? Right. And I was lucky that I had the experience that I had because when I dove in, I was able to lean on some some people. I had a production supervisor that was really, I was really close to that helped me kind of navigate like what you ask for, what you don't ask for, what's ridiculous, what's what's not ridiculous, you know? And kind of getting the the lay of the land. And, and um, that was a real benefit of doing second unit work. So, um, and, and that part of it, I really enjoy, like I, on this last thing, I did a underwater sequence. It was kind of ours as a second unit mm. and we got to work with a production designer and, and the art directors for those pieces and, and really kind of dissect how we were going to do it, how to make it safe, how to, how to make it look good, where to put lights, you know, and that, yeah. that part of it's really fun. And it's when it works. And you, and, you know, and, and you work in the confines of, of the money that the production has. It's, it's a good time. Yeah. The, uh, you know, I had a 
absolutely fucking amazing conversation with Greg Middleton. Uh, I love Greg Middleton. <laughs> it just uh, dude gave me four hours of his time and neither of us realized until because he was in Canada. So at one point he goes, I think I need to go to dinner. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I should probably let you go. <laughs> but um, using just just because I have that personal uh, mental touchstone, was there anything on uh, Moon Knight that springs to mind as something that like you maybe you learned or, or was particularly challenging that you were able to uh, overcome? I learned a lot from Greg Middleton. Um, he and Andrew Palermo, Greg was kind of the lead DP on the show. Andrew was doing the sort of second block work, but still creating and, and designing the, a, a world for, for his directors. Um, and I was the second, you know, DP and that show was so big and, and we had such a, I mean, it was, it was a 90 day schedule, right? Uh-huh. I think. We, as a second unit, we shot 63 days during that 90 days. Oh, wow. (laughs) A lot, a lot. And a lot of the stuff we, Greg set up, Greg is like a, he's a wizard of, of designing stage lighting. Like he's Mm. a, a complete fucking wizard. Like (laughs) we, Andrew and I would walk into a, a stage and be like, holy shit. we weren't want for anything you know like there was a light there was a light put somewhere where if you needed a light there it was probably in the rigging already you know he just thought of everything he's got a big brain and he's super generous and i learned a lot from him i learned a lot from like okay like next time when i do this i'm definitely going to put like some 12ks up in that corner for sunlight instead of using you know leds or whatever all the time it was a mixture of of different units and and i i learned a, a ton from him and he and he because of the schedule handed me several uh projects where i had to do all the designing of the lighting for the rigging um and it was i appreciated his trust and i um andrew and i both i think learned a, a lot from greg because yeah. he just had been he'd been doing it at that level at that scale for so long he he knows all the pitfalls yeah oh because that was the other thing we were talking about with him was like game of thrones certainly probably had some uh uh educational moments as well <laughs> for being oh, sure that big of a show that quote-unquote early into streaming um Actually, that you you brought up the you know using a twelve k instead of LEDs and stuff, and this is a conversation that I think is kind of um, germane germane to uh, maybe more experienced DPs. But LEDs are wonderful, and they certainly have so many uses. Um, besides, obviously, mimicking the sun, or maybe even not. Winter winter times where LEDs are not going to work for you, like just flat out won't. Cause I think, um, especially at the more indie side of things, it's really difficult to think like, Oh, I need to, even though they're cheaper, I need to rent, um, you know, uh, uh even a one K or something like that. Just hot lights, you know, now I got to think about power. Now I can't do these things off batteries. Now there's, you know, all those workflow things that LEDs solve way too heavily on the, uh, image against the image that you're trying to get. Uh, did any of that make sense? Was that a it does, <laughs> no? It did you know? Sentence? I think the 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 biggest thing about I think you need both as a DP. I mean, I right. think 
you you should be able to utilize both. LEDs are are fabulously versatile. They're not they don't have enough throw. Like you know, an 18k or a 12k par, like they 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 just cover more distance. They hold the their foot candles it's just travel farther. There's just right. more oomph there, right? So I was the way I was brought up as a DP, I worked with several DPs who were really good at soft light. And back in those days, they didn't have LEDs. And right. so you were breaking the light particles down, you know, and and through different layers of diffusion and creating this giant box, you know, doing a book light or whatever. I still do that if I have the time, because I think it looks better. It wraps better. It throws farther. And, and the quality of light is, is better. Um, the LEDs are fast. If so, if I need to go fast, I'm going to use LEDs. Um, the tubes, I love the tubes. Like, Oh, I, we all love the tubes. Bit. We all love like, the tubes. Helios Astera too. needs to give me a million dollars. I have Seriously. mentioned them on every single podcast. It's oh eight, 80 plus hours of Astera ads on this damn podcast. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times it's just like, what's missing? What's missing? Like I'm looking at it. Ah, just put a, put a Helios on the ground right here with a egg crate on it. And it just turning it on at 10%, you know, right. It's just that little last bit of finishing touch. And I love that about them. You know, you can have all your big lights, your hot lights on, and you're still going to need those little details. And back in the old days, like three people would run in with a, you know, a stand and a, and a, and one of the inky with a snoot on it, all this shit clanging around and tables running. There's a lot of freedom. And even for indie filmmakers, like I did a, like a less than a million dollar movie and I, the gaffer that I was working with had an iPad with a, with, you know, rat packs and like, it's, was it just faster. Those are nice. I yeah. really enjoy the, uh, the iPad. Um, what do you call it? Why do I keep trying to say ITX? That's not a thing. Um, DMX. 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 Jesus Christ. Yeah. I haven't had coffee today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well hydrated though. Um, yeah. The wireless DMX off the iPad is, is a dream, even on just like a dumb little white psych set, you know, it's just nice. To be totally. Able to it's, it's liberating. I'll even do it. Like I work at a monitor, like often, often don't work at the DIT station. I'll, I'll set up my own monitor so I could be closer to the set if I'm not operating a camera. Um, and, and on the indie movie, I even had an iPad below my monitor, you know, with the, the four lights that we had or whatever. Right. Cause I'm, I'm not smart enough to do anything like bigger than that. But if you wanted to do a lighting gag or turn a light off when an actor goes for the switch or whatever, like it's pretty empowering for, yeah. for uh, young filmmakers and independent filmmakers to have those tools. Well, and one thing you're saying, cause like something that I think everyone always thinks about when they're trying to get into making their taking their cinematography to le- to the next level um at least visually uh is kind of getting back on the on the uh the hot light thing or the more powerful light is you can't obviously there's that common refrain of like you can soften a hard light you can't harden a soft light 
But obviously throughout the 90s, 2000s, even recently, Kinos into LEDs made soft light incredibly in vogue. And then now I think it's so overplayed that people are starting to go back to hard light, but they're still using lowered powered, lower powered LEDs. So you can't, like, as you were saying, make a nice big book light or anything like that because you don't have enough power. And part of me thinks, correct me if I'm wrong, but that that more powerful, larger soft source is kind of that quote unquote cinematic look that a lot of people are thinking they want and are oh, trying yeah. to replicate. Yes. And that's this, and this is the difficulty of like, like coming up in a, in a world where you never saw those, the mechanics of how those things work. Right. Mm -hmm. You can ask for them, but, but if you don't understand how they're made or built, your other job as a DP is to be a time manager, right? right. You're, you're always under pressure for time. So you, you know, and whether or not you have time or a rigging department to make things for you before you get there, you have to factor that into your day. Like if that's your plan, it's, it's smart to know like, well, how long does it take to build that out? And what if, right. and, and then when we turn around, we do coverage, like how long does it take to move it and turn it around? You know, um, that's a consideration I think a lot of people make when they, when they approach using those bigger, older tools again. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I like to light from outside if I can, like on day, day interiors and stuff like that. So I'm constantly hoping and scraping for the biggest lights I can get. Cause that kind of right. gives you more shooting space. You know, you're not using lights on the floor. You're, they're, they're not even in the, in the picture generally. Right. Um, the, uh, and that's what I use big lights for most of the time is, is to, to, to travel long distances and maintain power. Yeah. Well, and when they're farther away, you can move a lot more, you know, you're not bumping into sets and stuff. But one yeah. thing I noticed on your little uh, about page on your website that, uh, cause I'm sure someone besides you wrote that, uh, that there was, um, <laughs> that, uh, you're really good with natural light. And I wanted to know kind of what so many times I will see people say like, oh, I love shooting in natural light. And what they mean is they have not had the uh, maybe not the inclination, but maybe haven't had the resources to work with more fixtures. So what they they're more comfortable with natural light. And I was wondering what your uh, where do you find that expertise and maybe what are some of the tips to make that look very good? Well, when I say natural light or naturalistic light, I mean. I like my movie, like when I'm shooting, depending on what I'm doing, I like the, I like it to look like it's not been lit necessarily. So right. not in it. And I don't mean that like flat. I, I like it to look modeled and have contrast and, and be beautiful, but I, I like to not show my hand as much. Right. I guess. So, uh, it's sort of, again, this is like a learned aesthetic from, from mentors that I had in the past is like the photography should blend in with the writing and, and, and the film as a whole and not stand out. It should tell the story that you're out there to tell. Like recently I did a comedy, which we, the estate, which had a very short right. schedule and we used a lot of big lights but it was meant to look like natural light because the director didn't want it to have, he wanted it to be very loose. He didn't want it to have like an aesthetic. He didn't want the frames to be precious. He wanted the camera work to be, you know, loose and, and fluid and, and fun and 
unpretentious and that's you know that was his desire that's what we did together and we and we worked it out so my my the statement about me not liking natural light is like i like to make it feel motivated right it drives me nuts when i i watch movies that are supposed to take place in in some form of reality and and there's a lot of unmotivated light just to just to make the actors look good or just to put a backlight in there or whatever and i think part of part of what my training was and working with people that i admired was they would find a you walk into a room you look at a window you you look at where the doors are and then you create a lighting plan based on what the location gives you right that's what i think is naturalistic lighting and then you might put an 18k out that window to push more light in so you have more contrast and you might put a M40 in the other window so you have a three-quarter backlight when you turn around, soften it or whatever you're going to do. And then that's that's what I mean by naturalistic lighting, where I wouldn't be putting a lot of lighting in the room right. to, to, to get that backlight to hit the person. I would just let the let the space kind of be the the guide for the lighting plans. Really got to lean on your uh, production designers and your location scouts then, yeah? Oh, yeah. And that's, again, that's what I find to be one of the funnest parts is the pre-production process. Like on that film, I worked with uh, Austin Gorge, who's a production designer, and we didn't have a lot of money, but we had, you know, a, a, a big location, a house, and we were able to populate it with, you know, a lot of practical lights, like we talked about where you know what directions we'll be shooting and how can how can I make things stand out a little better and and he and the set decorator would populate it with you know practicals and stuff like that where we could get motivation from right yeah and and that part and the color of walls and you know we did what we could with with what little money we had on that job but that that part is so collaborative and fun and creative I love it. You know, and then you, you have to live with the choices that you make in in pre-production, you know, and make it work for you. So the more you do it and the more you collaborate with people, the better you get at setting yourself up for success. What are, because uh, I've, I've spoken to a few really great production designers before uh, on this podcast, and I was wondering if there's anything that a production designer does for you besides obviously giving you a thousand lamps in one room, uh, <laughs> which I love to play that game with uh, when yeah. I'm watching movies with like my girlfriend and stuff. Like how many yeah, lamps are in this house? You... <laughs> it's about and why are they all on in yeah. the middle of the daytime? <laughs> yeah. um, oh, there's so many little things that I think DPs watch that are always like uh, the other fun game is where's that backlight come from? And, well, yeah, uh, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about in terms of like, I really have to, force myself to put a backlight somewhere where there would be no motivated backlight. And I don't know if that's some sort of like disease that I have that I can't just be like, Oh, it needs a backlight. Just put a backlight in there. I'm, I'm like, well, there's no window there. And like the door, it's the punk rock in you. Yeah. That's that's very fifties Hollywood. We don't do backlight anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and let's like, it's also like, I know that everybody is competing for pretty frames, like all the stuff you want. It's, cinematography is having like its moment like everything is fucking gorgeous and the punk rock in me says like yeah i can make gorgeous pictures right but i want to do it for the right reasons and i want it to serve the script like read a script 
you're going to know, like, this might not be the prettiest movie, you know? <laughs> right. This is, but you're telling a story that, that requires, I mean, I think that's also the discipline of old school cinematography is like, you're telling a story that, that requires a certain type of photography. The script is asking for it to be shot in this way. Right. Right. And, and to be sensitive to that and, and to kind of recognize that and then get into a conversation with the, the director um, and the production designer about like, okay, well, what do, what do you think when you, you know, what are your inspirations when you read this? And that's where you go down the, the road of the initial collaboration, you know, referencing yeah. and pulling images and, and talking about aesthetics. But yeah, it's, it's uh what was it? Oh, that's well. Now I had two thoughts, but I'll stick with the first one. Um, that's the I should have warned you up front. There's there's a lot of detours that my brain will take uh, that. <laughs> throughout yeah. the conversation. I'm good. Um, I'm good with that. <laughs> but uh, the first thing I was going to ask was, what are some of the things that a production designer does for you that makes your life better or that you love to see? And maybe some things that uh, you kind of have to maybe battle with so that they get what they want and you also get what you want. Yeah, it's definitely. Uh, uh, a dance that that person usually comes on um early or than the dp often they're they're involved in the like really preliminary director scouts and and kind of because they're building stuff maybe and um there's so many things that they could do to make your life better like good paint um you know i have preferences on tonalities i have less preference on color if the tone is right you know and the shades are right what do you mean? like just the 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 shade like the shade of a wall if it could be it could be a a blue or a gray i don't really care as long as as long as it's not you know too bright or sure you know what i mean like that's yeah i'm a dp i want as dark a wall as i can right. a lot of the times not always but um just trying to to give the the image some shape. And I think a lot of production designers totally get that. Um, not all of them do, but the ones that do are, are fabulous to work with. Yeah. I did this movie banana split and I worked with Almitra Corey and she is so talented and like her use of color in that movie was, was amazing. Like, and she worked with uh, Mona Fey, our, our um, costume designer and that's so to help all the things a production designer that works closely with a costume designer is like, yeah, that's a, that's a good um, setup. They work together so well in that movie where I would sh show up and it was a small movie, but I'd show up and be like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Like shirt matches wall matches all the, you know, not matches, but maybe it's color contrast. Maybe fits. it's you know, it fits into the whole stellar to work with those two. And and um I even changed, I remember I was doing color on that movie, and there was this microwave in the back of the scene in this the kitchen. There's some bokeh coming off the microwave. Mm. And Amitra had designed the whole movie is like these great colors, yellow and cyan and stuff, and this but it was, it was oddly colored. It was like this dark orange and it just didn't match. It didn't match mm -hmm. the wardrobe. You know, there's nothing I could have done about it in the day or I didn't notice it. And in color, we changed it 
we changed the Boca to Cyan. You know? Yeah. I'm like, hey, wait. <laughs> you know, can we make that a different color? And that, well, the whole point of that story was I had such a deep respect for Almitra that when I when I saw that 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 little orange light, I was like, she would love if that was cyan right now. You know? Right. And that was because we had this great connection. That that's actually a great springboard to a question that I love to ask people, um, which is what are your have you a have you worked with the, the same colorist more than once? But B, what is your relationship with colorists like and how much um, are you able to kind of dictate before the film shoots? And, and how much are you sitting in the session afterwards? How much trust is there? How much are you like because, you know, I've said it a billion times. Anyone who's listened to me talk knows that I've said that cinematography squarely has one foot in post these days, whereas before it was a little more, you know, the, you were behind the magic box and you decided what it looked like. Now, Steven gets to decide what it looks like if you're not paying it's attention. True, <laughs> It's true. They, you do get a lot of, you do get a lot of, uh, there are a lot more voices in the post process now. And the bigger the, the bigger the project, the more voices there are. Um, I work, which I've done all my indie films except for one that I did, well, it wasn't an indie film, it was, for, it was a Lifetime movie. I've done with Alastair Arnold at um, Photocam. Mm. We, we met, um, when I first started shooting, I, I did a little movie, it was like under a million bucks, and, and there was this thing called The Lodge at Photocam, which was like a indie movie space. Um, they had one colorist, was Al, and they took on you know, charity clients uh, sure. to try to push independent film. And um, we hit it off, we hit it off immediately and we've worked together ever since. So uh, to answer the second part of your question, I work with Al, I'll call Al before starting a movie and say, Hey, I'm doing this. And we'll talk about uh, the LUT or LUTs that I might use, um, or I'll modify one that I've already used and, and he'll modify it and send me the files. And, right. and we'll put it in camera. And if I have time to shoot tests, I'll, you know, shoot tests with it and see if, if it's right. Um, yeah, he, he's got a great eye for color. We have a great rapport. I trust him implicitly uh, because of my long experience with him. And yeah. I, I try to spend as much time in color as I can. Like on the estate, I was fortunate. I did like almost 80 hours of color, um, both remotely and, and, um, and in a room, actually, I was never in a room with Al. I, would, I did it. He was in LA. I was in Atlanta because I was working. Mm. And they had this. But you great still had a set, calibrated setup. monitor. I had a yeah, actually a calibrated movie screen. Um, oh, wow. They did a. I don't know the name of the technology, but it's super rad. <laughs> frame IO adjacent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like Frame IO plus. Yeah. Um, but I love color. I, I love not only fixing the mistakes that I, I knew were there that I earmarked because right. I always come in with a laundry list of like, well, I didn't have time to do this. <laughs> That's been huge for me as a personal, like coloring my own stuff uh, is like knowing when I can save time on set. Cause it's like, I don't need to flag that off. I just can, I can bring that down. I know I'm within the realm that like that won't look weird or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, no one crosses through that part of the room. I could just put a window there and scrunch it and it'll be fine. Yeah. You know. And if you have the the, you know, 
you can't really do the the next piece of technology that's going to be a game changer is when um, Windows can go on CDLs and and get yeah. transferred into the daily's workflow and not because right now you can do like a wash over the whole thing, be like per per take, do brighter, darker, whatever. You can't do any dynamic stuff, but like you could take a whole take and and make it you know say you underexposed it or there was something you didn't have control over you wanted to fix you could do that in the cdl and send it but like to be able to sculpt uh, actually that that's probably <laughs> that's probably a horrible idea it's going to take D- all our jobs dps are just get sucked <laughs> sucked into the tent even further you know it'd be like oh, oh, right. put a power window on that <laughs> yeah just sitting in there with the colors like all right put take that down they're calling for you on set all right are you going to shoot this yeah. uh, what the one. fuck is that guy doing in there <laughs> get out of I there I want his shirt to be blue now. Yeah, can we uh, do a? Can you do like a chroma key on a shirt? And like, I want to, I want to bring it down a little bit. Yeah. Oh, the ADs, man, that... That's an AD, AD like nightmare. They want to murder you. Yes. <laughs> like, what are you doing in there? Are you uh... post production? <laughs> well, that was the whole thing. That was one thing that they said about Frame.io that I thought was. Uh... A cool idea was, you know, getting the the proxies and even in, nowadays you can get um, red raw through Frame.io. So you get the original camera negative, but um, mm. saying that they were turning what was prim- what used to be a parallel or excuse me, what used to be a linear process, you know, pre-production, post-production or production, post-production into a parallel process where they can happen at the same time. And I thought that was a pretty smart way to advertise that that system was like, yeah, it would be great if when you were done shooting, there was only like two weeks of post left and then it was done versus, you know, months and months after the fact where you're not quite in the same headspace or whatever. But I could see how for if we did it for colorists, that would be potentially brutal. Well, yeah. And just because the 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 budgeting for films is based around like location availability and equipment rentals and like when you start to break down all the costs and manpower and all that stuff, you're like, no, you, you don't have time to do that, you know? Right. And you, you kind of don't. And I think that's, it's probably where it'll end up staying at least in the feature environment is it's, you just don't have time. You know, the director wants another take, the actors want to do more. You have uh, a company move in the middle of the day to a new location. Like you, yeah. I think uh, as much as I would love to sit there and be like, oh, yeah, and like make windows and stuff. <laughs> we, can, we can wait till later. That was actually yeah. something that I uh, I don't know why this blew my mind, but it was it was so obvious when he said it. When I was talking to Greg, I was like, how does Marvel keep all their stuff so consistent when you've got so many different um people working on it, you know, any, all the films, all the shows, they all look relatively like there's gotta be some kind of mandate. And I, I'm sure there is like some, you could tell me if you're allowed to, but he was like, Oh no, they just let you borrow. Like they have a, they have a library of LUTs that they've used on everything. You can just use those. And I was like, of oh, fucking course they do. Mm-hmm. Of course they just go, here's the black Panther. Let's see if that works for you or whatever, you know? Yes. And, and you know what, that's one of the things that they do, you know, people can say what they want about that company and the, and the stuff that they make, they it's, they have an aesthetic, right. And, yeah. and like, if you go, if you're going to do that work, then, then there are parameters, right. I, the way I look at it is like, they have a baby 
and they give you the baby and they, they want you to take the baby from point A to point B. Yep. Right. And then they're going to finish the, all the work on the baby when, when you're <laughs> going to finish the baby. <laughs> right. So you're, you're like, this is my sort of the, the headspace that I'm in when I'm working for them is that I know, especially second unit, I know what right. my boundaries are and parameters are for creativity. Right. I have this little bandwidth that's, that's, it's not that narrow, actually. Some days it's pretty wide. But like, if you know the place that you're meant to be creative when you're working for a company like that, it can be very satisfying. Sure. Um, if you don't know and you think you're going to come in and you're going to change everything, like that could be really frustrating for you, you know, right. which by all means from a, the punk rock at me is like, go fucking change whatever you like. You know, I, everyone would welcome a new idea here and there. Right. I know from looking at their LUTs and having been exposed to a lot of them, um, they're engineered to a certain degree to, to be similar, but also to extract enough information for the VFX and post color department. So, mm. so here's an interesting thing. And I kind of came to this conclusion recently was they're, they're built kind of dark, right? So you really have to push a lot of light in to, to, to affect the image, right? Because what do a lot of cinematographers do? Fucking underexpose the shit out of it. We shoot at the toe of the chip so no one can fuck with our stuff. Yep. Right? And I've, I'm guilty of doing it. I've done it on most of my indie movies because I didn't know how much color I was, timing I was going to get, you know, yep. in the DI. So that being like a through line with most DPs, um, fuck them. They can't change it. Right. They engineered LUTs. So like you have to push enough light in there. And, and honestly, it made me realize all this time not to not be paranoid and right. also to, to say, let's do it in the CDL because why wouldn't I want this much information? I can squash it down in the CDL and make it look like there's nothing there. And then if I get into trouble later, I can open it up. It is not a, like, even if it is something that they're doing, I wouldn't say it's like a sneaky thing, but you know, to, as you're saying, make sure VFX has a ton of info. Like, yeah, you're hundred percent right. Unless you're paranoid about what they're going to do with your image. It totally makes sense to engineer a LUT that forces you to give yourself an out if you need it, yeah. you know? Right. Um, that's the beauty of digital is, is we, it's far more forgiving and you can f fix uh, mistakes that you maybe or, the way I like to look at it when I'm doing stuff is I'm uh, any shoot I do. I always try to test like one or two things that I won't ruin everything, you know, like uh, whether it be a piece of equipment or a technique or whatever, I'm always trying to test one or two new things that I know if everything goes wrong, no one will notice, you know, it's right. <laughs> so digital is, is that embodied, you know, you're like, oh, I'll just give this a shot. And if it doesn't work eh, fix it and fix it in the grade, who cares? Normally, because yeah, I'm I, fixing it in the grade, obviously. But. Right, but like, but you know that you have that latitude, and it's, it was kind of a revelation for me because I, I had been adhering to the to the give them less, you know, and protect my look. And then I was like, you know what? It's just it seems more, and it might just be that push towards more a, a corporate filmmaking of like, why wouldn't you want all the ones and zeros in there? You know, yeah. you could still be the the master of darkness or whatever yeah. you imagine yourself to be as a DP by using CDLs and doing stuff in color, you know? Yeah. 
Um, it, yeah. So the, I'm always amazed. I just want to say one more thing. I'm always yeah, amazed yeah. at the shadow detail on, on the chip. And I, I think it's on true. The Alexa my, or just in general? Just in general, like on my still cameras, I'm always shocked when I lift the hood on stuff. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize that was there, you know? I, uh, that's actually a great segue because I did want to talk about your photography. But to your point about how much latitude there is in those, in those raw negatives on a stills camera, I have an X-T3 and I was shooting uh, my friend's proposal, right? It was staged. <laughs> he had already proposed. So I got to actually set them up. And I was trying to, it was sunset. Huh, and so I'm like, tr- yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they were cool with it. But so um, yeah. I was trying to get a photo of the sunset and get them exposed. And I couldn't get it to where I didn't have any lights. You know, I'm just fighting the sunset. It was, I did it for in- incredibly cheap. But uh, I had it on auto and I was just snapping away. And I got some where they were exposed and some were, one where they were just in silhouette completely. And I was like, oh, I wonder how much I can get out of this. And the Came, you can't even tell. There's like no noise on it. No. And that camera's like five years old, you know, and it's just doop, all the way up. Sunset's there, there, there. I'm like, I just should be, I don't even need to, I should just protect for the highlights all the time. Cause it's like you a 16 kinda, bit raw or whatever. Yeah. Like you kind of can in a, in a lot of ways. It's yeah. different with motion picture cameras, a little bit different. Right. Right. And that people are moving and you get, it gives away the, the, the artifacting is more apparent. But right. it's ama- it's amazing, totally amazing. And uh, compressed versus raw too. I Always assume raw. you guys are. Yeah, I mean, is why not? Well, if I someone mean, else is paying for it, if you're paying for it, <laughs> that's storage. Yeah, I mean, if I was, doing, yeah, exactly. So yeah, here's the thing. Like on on the last, I guess the estate was the only feature film indie feature that I shot where I could afford to shoot raw. Before I was shooting like pro res right four 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 like you know do, doing doing the maximum that that the workflow and the money would allow because right you know it's ones and zeros aren't free <laughs> right yeah yeah <laughs> gotta put them somewhere yeah and the lab costs are you know it's it's pretty it's pretty fascinating the stratification of of low budget versus big corporate filmmaking like what it actually takes uh is pretty amazing is it mostly hard drives <laughs> it's a lot of hard drives it's a lot of fast hard drives like i did this thing on 65 millimeter uh, or alexa 65 it's like the vault system mm-hmm. you know where you have like this massive oh the codex data. thing yeah yeah massive thing that stores everything and i don't even know how it works but it's it looked expensive there are a lot of lights on it <laughs> it's probably like yeah it's probably like a petabyte of ssds worth more than a house <laughs> oh yeah definitely more than your house i uh i did want to talk to you though about uh your still photography because on your instagram there's a bunch of just really lovely uh black and white photography and portraits and whatnot that was yours, right? Okay, good. I was yeah. like, hold on. I was yeah, looking no, up a couple me. people. Um, and I actually, I did a few years ago, I did like a year of black and white and it, and it absolutely changed. It helped me see light so much better than any training I did was just to try to find beautiful light in black and white. Um, and the portraits you're doing are great. And I was wondering, uh, Thank you. obviously you've been, you've been doing 
photography for a while, but is are you are you kind of is portraiture just your current project, or is that something you've always loved? And and also, obviously, what are you shooting with? <laughs> I, I want so I always I've always wanted to do portraits. I've I've mostly been a street style photographer since I was started. You know, since I picked up a camera, I I love like things that aren't set up. Yeah. And, 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 you know, just the, the whole vibe of street photography just like worked with my ethos. And I, I've always wanted to shoot portraits. I've never been bold enough to shoot strangers. Mm. So, so I think like my portraits that I'm doing now was a recent, um, discovery i shoot a leica m 10 nice. monochrome nice. and i have you know i'm fortunate to have that camera and i bought this old 40 mil um sumacron from like 19 even nicer yeah so i've had that thing on my list for a while <laughs> yeah it's a beautiful lens it's not one of the most expensive lenses that was like 900 bucks and um i put a I was doing some tests. I had a, a diopter and I put it on there because, you know, the, the M's, the M lenses don't focus very close. Right? right. So I put a diopter on there and I was frustrated with it because the, the frame lines in the, in the optical rangefinder don't match. Anyway, long story short, I started shooting some close-ups of like my hand and stuff. And I'm like, this would be really cool to shoot portraits like with, with a wider lens instead of a longer lens and, and be more intimate. But it's not like yeah. a 28 where you're like doing environmental por portraiture. It, it's more like in here. Yeah. So I grabbed a couple of friends on the set and I was like, put my hand on their shoulder because the focus was so <laughs> minimal. And I'm like rocking back and forth like this, you know, and that's that's that started like two months ago. And I was like, I have to do a lot of these. And I want to and it's kind of made me want to get closer to the people that I work with. Yeah, you know, and, I, and uh, I want it to be a democratic thing too. Like I like the idea of portraiture of just people that you admire in your real life. You know, it's totally like I I've had this project in my head that I, I want to try to do next year. But do you know the photographer Dan Winters? I'm not. I'm not sure. I do. G give him a look up uh, when we when we're off because it his photos are just incredibly unique. Um, and I love, I love his style so much and I want, I've wanted to sh do like portraits of my friends in kind of a similar style to his. That's very uh, editorial and, and kind of muted. And especially cause I, I, I run this, uh, I produce a stand up comedy show. And so I know all these comedians and I would love to just get these kind of uh, reserved portraits of all of them. You know, and I, I just think that it just sounds like such a fun project. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I when I saw your Instagram, I was like, hell yeah, dude, this is <laughs> right, right around what I was thinking. Like, well, but I love I love that it was a diopter, though, because I was wondering, it's a very unique look. Yeah, because it's it's not too wide a lens because that would distort the face and make people's noses look too big and everything. But it's not too long a lens. So it's you still feel the subjectivity of the lens. You feel close to somebody. You don't feel like you're on a 90 mil backed off. Right. You feel like you're up in their shit. I like that, that it's a subtextual vibe of that kind of photography. And I guess 
the uniformity aspect of it, I love like Richard Avedon's portraits. I love when when you see a series. Uh, a friend of mine years ago, who's a graphic designer, told me he goes, "You have some great images in your photography, but like photography is is a body of work. It's not one right. image, or it's not ten images. It's 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 like it's done over the course of many many years and time. So it's like when he said that, I realized, oh my god, I've been I've been trying to get all these images and obtain them and 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 capture them. But really I let go of a lot of the stress about it. And then you just can dive in and be like, I'm going to, I'm going to photograph apples for fucking yeah. a couple of months and see what that does <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> or whatever, yeah. or whatever, you know, that's such a smart thing to like, remember too, is because I think, especially when you're starting out in any art form, you, you're trying to hit some goal. Like once, once I can make an image in our case, look like X, then I will be a photographer or a cinematographer or whatever. And then I think when you get further along, a, when you've done it for long enough that you've been beaten down, that you realize you'll never get there or B you, <laughs> you've, um, you've done enough that you go like, Oh, I, or you, you know, you hit that point and you go, Oh, well then, then what, you know, it's the dog catching the car thing. And you're like, Oh, I guess I, I guess I'm free to do, whatever interests me and not what I prescribed to um, professionalism or, or however you want to phrase it. I, yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I think that setting, and this goes back to what you said earlier and, and I've said it like there is freedom in setting boundaries for yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. So I kind of set these creative boundaries for myself as a main unit DP and say, I want to, I want the writing to, to give me inspiration. I don't want to apply my own aesthetic to this movie. I want it to, to tell me what it's supposed to be. Right. So that's one limit instead of going, Oh, I saw, you know, white Lotus and I really like white Lotus and the way it looks and I'm going to make everything look, you know, which is so many briefs that want to be um, uh, euphoria. Oh my God. Oh my Every God. Music video, everyone's like, we want it to look like euphoria. Yeah. I'm like, of course you do. Can you get Kodak to revive a dead fucking film stock for you? And this is the gaffer that did oh, that wow. show. Danny Durr. And like, you're not going to be able to do it right. Unless, unless you, have, you have this person, right? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, awesome. And the cinematographer. But anyway, the... <laughs> I like, he's a hero. Like I love when people take that concept and they make something original and everyone wants to copy it in the meantime, like I might not get a script like euphoria. Right. But don't try to put euphoria on your, you know, right. other movie that wants to be, that's like, that's in its own space screaming. Don't make me look like euphoria. <laughs> right. There's a lot of, uh, I've noticed, because obviously, you know, doing all these interviews, I, I do as much research as I can. And uh, I've noticed most DPs do have a thing, you you as well, have a thing in their bio about uh, not in any other set of words, like not imposing a look. And I'm like, this must be such a big problem that directors run into that in your bio, you have to be like, do not worry. I'm not here to, <laughs> to make well it my movie. Right. So there's, there's that, that has, this is twofold uh, answer to that. One, I truly believe that. Oh, and, sure. And, but, and number two, a lot of directors in interviews 
I've lost a lot of jobs because I come off as too collaborative. I'm not, some directors want, they want to hire a DP to make the film look bitching, right? So it's like, I am capable of doing that. But in the interview process, I don't know that you're that person. So, so I'm going to come off as myself, right? So right. I'm going to come off trying to, trying to get out of you what, what you might think it looks like or what you think the writing tells you it looks like or whatever. And I'm going to, I'm going to follow my face in the interview and probably not get the job. Cause I haven't said, here's a lookbook with my whole enchilada and like, welcome to your story. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's like steady on God. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see that? Did you see that? You no. thing about it's like <laughs> it's a DP like satire on DPs, and it's like um, one of the lines is like DP speaking uh, about his rigging. You know, <laughs> I created this light. You know, steady on God. <laughs> <laughs> like just the, the yeah. I'll send it to you. The, okay, good because yeah. There's yeah, so good. so in there, I, I put that in there. So at least I'm saying, hey, maybe I'm not going to hand you like your your movie on a platter when we have our interview. Right. And we're going to have to talk about it a little bit. Well, it's good. I mean, it's good to set expectations like that. Certainly one thing I had to do was stop talking myself up. Like even if I know I have the skills, I don't have the resume. So I can't be here like has been making films for 20 years. It's like high school <laughs> doesn't count, you know, like <laughs> sure it does. Yeah. Um, and I think people actually uh, respect that more. A, you're not wasting anyone's time if it's a total mismatch, but B people can, especially people who are experienced can sniff out bullshit and they know if you're like, you're going to get avoided way more if you're talking yourself up to some oh, God, yeah. that you can't hit, then you will having a no. conversation and being like, Oh, never mind. This just wasn't a good fit. Yeah. And I've met people like I, I know an editor who, or excuse me, a director who hired an editor who had done a lot of talking and then mm. just delivered kind of this milk, like, like milk toast, like cut. And it was like, where was all, where's all the stuff that you said you were going to do the limits you were going to push and all the, you know, interesting transitions you were going to put in there. And like, you know, it didn't, it didn't materialize. And that's like someone who's got experience, but talks too high a game. You, you, you have to know yourself. <laughs> yeah. You well, know? that take that does take a level of maturity that some is for a lot of people, not uh, accessible. You know, if you don't have enough life experience, a lot of times, and as artists, I feel like a lot of people don't potentially might not have life experience. They they p chose art because it was potentially a singular experience for them. Um, I think that maturity cannot be as accessible, you know, until you've done, done some life or, or been hit over the head a few times. You have to be you have to be in filmmaking. You have to have gone through the grinder enough to know like you have you you develop a sense for what's working and what's not. And then also you develop like a a chronolo a chronology of the day as you're as you're working on something where and that's that only comes with experience. I didn't have it, you right. know. It's a it's a, an acquired skill um, to be able to kind of navigate a day with with actors and locations and lighting and 
you know, there's a lot of expectations from the, for the people paying for the movie that you're going to make your days, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's cost a lot of money to do those, th- you know, to make films. So yeah, like I'm a process nerd. Like I get into the, like the nitty gritty of like how this director works and like, Oh, what is this person? Yeah. What is this person? How does this person attack a scene? You know, do they attack it from the blocking perspective? Are they working with the actors on, on dialogue? Um, do they have, you know, visual preferences? Am I doing some of the blocking? Like you kind of have to hash all that stuff out in the first week or so. And you can ask, ask questions in pre-production, but I find that generally <laughs> the set dynamics, the best laid plans. <laughs> oh yeah. The set dynamics don't, don't bear themselves out until you're actually there working. And you're like, Oh, okay. That's, that's how, that's how this works. Okay, fine. Like, and then you kind of tailor your stuff around that person. But again, that having witnessed and been witnessed to some really extreme environments, like you develop coping mechanisms for, you know, for adapting to whatever tone is set in the working environment. And that's what I mean by process, I guess. Totally. That actually, um, I know we're kind of a little over time, so I'll let you go here shortly, but I, that did remind me of. Sorry, I have to pick up my son. In, in. uh, No, at one fifty-two, which is uh, 30 minutes. It takes me 10 minutes to get there. So I'm good. Well, we'll, we'll, we can wrap it up in 10. But uh, you talking about working with other people reminded me of a question I wanted to ask earlier, which was because you're doing a lot of, you've done a lot of second unit stuff um, and you're working with stunt teams and, and VFX teams and stuff like that pretty closely. Are there any kind of skills that you fi- have found that y- you think are pretty cool that you've picked up from those other disciplines that maybe a normal DP or a normal camera person wouldn't? Oh, absolutely. Um, r- workflow of those departments. Um the 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 inner workings and management of like the stunt departments i i kind of knew the hierarchies but i didn't really know like how they work from the inside and to be working with them closely like in rehearsal mode and and development mode i really got to see a lot of the discipline those people uh work under and through like they they are mind-blowingly professional and, and safety conscious and precise. They're, they're amazing uh, athletes and filmmakers. Like a lot of them shoot their own stunt viz and it's, Oh yeah. It's I've good, seen plenty it's of good those, filmmaking. Yeah. It's like, it's like they're creating some pretty rad shots and what, you know, oneers that wrap around a lot of that, a lot of that is conceived in the stunt department. So I, I, I learned to have a lot of respect for the creativity of of both those and the visual effects department people people don't not a lot of people understand the visual effects department and i've i've tried to do my best to educate myself about what because often i'm i'm their conduit to acquire the things that they need and sometimes it might be a specific element like a glass hitting a a table and exploding or whatever um, as, as an actual asset and element to use, or they might be doing a study of something, you know, sure, reference footage. A, a lot of people misunderstand, like, why are we shooting this? They're going to create this. It's like, they're doing a study. They're doing, they're shooting references, like for maybe the arm movement or the way the hair blows or whatever. It helps them 
and the artists create what they need. So again, I learned by, by asking questions and educating myself a lot. I earned, I've gained a lot of respect for those departments instead of yeah. seeing it as a laundry list of things to do and, and things that, that are on the agenda for the day that they have value and they come from a creative place. It's, that's making the movie better, you know? Yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, especially I've said this a million times on this podcast, but I'm a big special features nerd. Um, and like I said, at the head of the interview, like nine times out of 10, when you're watching behind the scenes, you're seeing the second unit, you know, cause it's always like the stunt stuff that they want to show. It's not like someone quietly pensively going over their lines or whatever. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's been incredibly educational to see like how all those things are set up and and um, when you can get a good special features, a lot of times in these days, you know, on the Blu-ray, it's marketing fluff. But uh, every once in a while, you get a good one and you get to learn all those things that I, I personally will probably not run into for years uh, if my career goes well, maybe a little, <laughs> a little sooner than years. But you never um, you never know. Uh, that's the thing. I've like I, these I, days. You never know. You never know where when it's going to happen. Yeah, I've, I feel I've said it a few times that I was unsure, but these days I'm 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 confident. It's very rare. It's it took twenty years of fucking around before I became confident, but I feel like that's pretty normal. Same, same. Oh, same. <laughs> it's not. A, I don't. Whoever's coming out like out of the gates with with all this uh, hubris and and confidence, like. Good on you. I, I've been like at pains to consider myself a cinematographer for years, Yeah. for years. Be like, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Like I was, I'm a, I was a good camera operator, but I'm, I'm, I'm not a cinematographer yet. You know, it, it takes for most people, I think it's such a big undertaking, you know, it I, takes a long time to feel comfortable in your, in your skill set. Yeah. Not only that, but like, I mean, I just have a, I th oh, I think we're about to say the same thing. I was going to say, I have this petrifying fear that not that I'll look dumb, but that I'll do something or shoot something some way that everyone knows is like wrong or whatever. And instead of telling me and just correcting and I learn something, they, they in their head go, never fucking hiring that guy again. Yeah, and they just guys, let me do it. Yeah. yeah. He's an idiot. Oh, that's just the worst. Him. Just tell me, just tell me. <laughs> I, I hope that that your friends would tell you, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, and I, like, I I had, like, I had trouble, a little bit of trouble with the way we photographed the estate, even though I signed on to it, to do it that way, as loose as it was. It, I don't, I'm not saying I had trouble with it. I'm saying I was challenged by it. Because right. it was indeed the way the movie was meant to be photographed. It was written that way. And that was the director's intention and it became my intention and we did it, but I was just scared because it was outside of my comfort zone, you know, right. I'm fully comfortable with my choices and I think it, it's the way the film is meant to look and I'm proud of it, but it was hard for me, you know, to get to that scared. point. I was nervous. Yeah. And some of the reviews kind of, I mean, I don't know if you include this in the podcast, but some of the reviews kind of slagged the photography off, which is very unprofessional. Gosh, yeah. Which is fine. It's fine. Not everyone's going to like it. It's a raunchy, right. kind of raunchy movie. It it doesn't want to be polished and perfect. It wanted yeah. to be loose and fun. And and that's that was intentional. 
So, but calling it out, like they're just reinforcing what the intention was. It's meant yeah. to be like that. So you didn't like it. So what? I can't, I can't help you. I think people are, uh, you know, on the one hand, there's the, like, if you haven't done it, how dare you say anything about it? And then on the other hand, it's like, (laughs) but also like, I think people are just too, because like we were saying earlier, like, and yeah, I guess we'll cut all this out, but because people were saying earlier, like, or as we were saying earlier, that it's so easy to make things that look pretty, you know, with all the LEDs and the new cameras and stuff like that, that I think people are kind of spoiled for like, they think, oh, if it doesn't look a certain way, if it doesn't look what I imagine a premium product to look like, then it's bad. It's like, no, there are choices in the world. Like it's not all, this is is the whole soft light thing. Like, yeah, we all went soft light because it, you know, beauty photography basically, but like, that's not always seven is not a soft film. (laughs) No. Yeah. And and like, and front light happens in the real world. And if you have the balls enough to embrace it, like, and well, you can put this, this part in like it's hard to shoot a movie and it's hard to shoot a movie with intention. And like on the estate, I, I degraded the image in, in the DI and added grain and, and busted some of the photography up to, to beat it up a little bit because that's what, that's what I thought it should look like. Right. So it, it was an anti-aesthetic film, not only in its content, but in the photography. So you know, but at least there was a choice made. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that's way more important, right? That you did yeah. what you set out to do than, than to, cause if you, if you waffle, that's when it actually looks bad and not like a choice. Right. And Harris Savides said it best. And I, I adhere to this on every job, make a plan, stick to the plan. Yeah. <laughs> that's if you make a plan and you stick to it, there'll be cohesiveness to the, the, the imagery in your film, right? If you say we're going to shoot it all in a 50 millimeter and we're going to overexpose and we're going to make it, you know, we're going to shoot everything upside down. It's going to look like the same movie the whole time. Right. I actually am a proponent of, especially for younger filmmakers, like shoot the whole movie on like a 35, like do something like that. Cause it's, I think again, taking away choices. Yeah. Zooms are the devil for young filmmakers. Like, yep. and that was instilled to me early as, as a photography student, walk around with a 35 millimeter lens. You have to walk closer to people to get this, you know, you learn yeah. about the, the value and actually there's not to get too weird, but that or artsy about it, but there's a subtextual feeling to lensing that yep. the intimacy of being close and wide is, is different than being, more observational and being on a long lens far away. Like it has a different narrative. You're, you're projecting, you're telegraphing a, a, a different feeling a vibe. It's yeah. subtle and, and, and people don't understand it, but they will feel it. Yeah. When people are at like my lens package needs like a one thirty five. I'm like, what are you shooting? <laughs> Nature. Yeah. Oh, okay. Then yeah. But <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I'm a, I'm in, the, I'm squarely in the like, 35, 50, 75 for inserts kind of guy, you know, I kind of, that's, I'm happy with that. I like, and I like, like, again, limiting choices, taking out the 35, 50 and 75, make a movie on those three lenses. Yep. It's done all the time. In fact, 
if if you had somebody write down uh, just the last thing I was on, we shot like a it was a forty five anamorphic was like the default lens on there all the time. Nice. It just ended up being like that magic lens, Other and it gives you visual cohesion. It does. It's subtle, but again, you have a visual cohesion. Absolutely. Yeah. Parameters. Well, I will uh, let you get out of here, but I end every podcast with the same two questions, but I have three for you. The first one, uh, how many autographs do you sign as David Fincher? <laughs> well, none, none. No one has mistaken me for David Fincher. <laughs> the glasses with the headphones. No, you look exactly like every David Fincher interview. Totally. Um, um, no, the the real the real question. Uh, if you were to put, uh, let's say, the estate in a double feature, you're programming a double feature. The estate. What's the second film? Oh, that's so it hard. Can, it you can match. It can me. contrast. You know. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, I had. I just I had it. It popped into my head, then it slipped away. I'm gonna say. Oh, let me think about that. Go back. What's the next question? <laughs> Second question. Uh, and I, I just started adding this because of an interview I did, and I think this is way better than what it used to be. And that is, what's the worst piece of advice you've ever gotten? Um, to the worst piece of advice I have ever gotten professionally, yeah, would be when I was not a DP. People always said, "Don't tell anybody that you want to be a DP." Interesting. You want them. You want them to think that you're because you want to get hired. You want people to think that you're a first AC or a camera operator. Oh, you don't I see, have I aspirations see. beyond your job. Fuck that. Tell people and the people that don't hire you because you want to be a DP, you don't want to have anything to do with that person. You want to yeah. be with people who are nurturing and supportive and mentoring, and they're going to help you achieve your goals as a, as a DP or whatever you want to be. But don't hide your – I spent years squashing my – true aspirations down as I was learning because I thought it was going to ensure that I would be able to come back to, to work and learn. And it, what it did was it, it wrecked my confidence when I started doing it myself. Yeah. Um, that's that. And th- the movie that I would suggest watching next to the estate. Oh, fuck. My so far, my favorite one was I, I was interviewing Jeff Cronin with for uh, being the Ricardos. And he goes, I was like, what would you double feature? And he goes, uh, alien versus predator. <laughs> That's because it's it, like it was right there for him. <laughs> Didn't his dad shoot that movie? His dad shot um, alien or a okay. no, no, no. Sorry. Blade Runner. Oh, Blade Runner. OK, that would have been too convenient. But he shot. uh did he shoot Alien 3 with Fincher? I think he did. I think he shot Alien 3, yeah. And then Aliens was... Um, action What's guy. his name? Yeah, action guy. Avatar guy. <laughs> yeah, Avatar. Um, I'm going to say... I'm going to say... That I, I'm stumped right now. 
but oh, that's really, right. I'm going to say, I'm going to do the contrast. I'm going to do the contrast okay. thing then. A contemporary movie that you could contrast with this, which is measured and beautiful and, and precise is 2049. Like it's the antithesis. Oh, interesting. Of okay. The movie that I made, you know, it's, it's beautiful and, um, and, and it's, it's, it's organized and precise, you know, and this is in the exact opposite of what the estate was meant to be. That's, um, that's actually I pretty... wish I, well, you, you inspired me cause you said contrast, but, um, well, they're just, like, I mean, a contrast is just as enlightening, right? If, if, right? if you go in and you see the complete opposite and you know that's what you're getting into and you should know by the bill on the thing, you know, that's right. that puts the audience. Again, I produce a stand-up show and I'm constantly thinking about what I can change about the physical room the audience is in that will prime them for comedy. And I think it's the same thing with a double feature is like, how are you priming the audience for whatever the headline film is? And, and obviously mm. placement changes it you know showing it after 2049 is different than showing it before oh yes absolutely without question and and actually i would go one further and say you could put it with you could put it with any 80s comedy because if you wanted to if you wanted the audience yeah Used cars is a good is a good example. If you wanted an audience that was gonna get it, it's it's a throwback movie. It's mm. raunchy. It's politically incorrect. It's it's a, a lot of things that that people aren't doing right now in comedy in film. Right. Um, it's gonna be compared to to early 2000s comedy, but I think it goes back even further than that. It's Well, I was going to say, you got Anna Ferris in there, and she, I remember her uh, all the time being in all, like, the scary movies and stuff like that, and, you know. Yeah, and she's good. She's so good in this. And that, one of the things that made a 25-day schedule makeable on that film was the quality of the actors. Like, Yeah, it's a great cast. It's a great cast and they, they deliver despite the reviews. It's, it's a, it's a fun romp. If you know, if you, if your expectations are set for that kind of comedy, it's, it's hilarious. Hell yeah. Well, yeah. uh, I now am putting you, uh, late to get your child. So my I son is going to you. yell at me. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, thanks Thank so you. much for spending the extra time with me. And that was super fun. I hope, I hope we can have you back to talk. more yeah, sometime. Dude. I would love that. Thank you so much. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the Ethidar Matbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always, thanks for listening.